Welcome to Peak Market Watch, bringing listeners the latest news in the commercial real estate industry. Every other Wednesday, Anton Matley from Peak Financing will interview a variety of investors, brokers, syndicators, vendors, and finance experts who live and breathe commercial real estate. Whether you are a commercial real estate professional or completely new to the industry, Peak Market Watch will give you an inside look into the state of the market from experts who know it best. Let's get into the show. Welcome to today's episode of Peak Financing's Market Watch. We speak with market leaders in commercial real estate and related services. We have a close pulse on the current market environment. My name is Anton Madley, co-founder and CEO of Peak Financing. And I'm honored to welcome Mauricio Roll, founder and CEO of Premier Law Group, a law firm specializing in private placements. Welcome, Mauricio. Thanks, Anton. Thanks for having me. It's uh, good to see you. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. So uh, why don't you give us a brief background about uh, yourself and uh, your firm? Oh boy, well, uh, I am an attorney, uh, unfortunately, or, uh, or maybe not unfortunately. Uh, I'm not your typical lawyer, though. Most people, as you know, Anton, most people refer to me as the anti-lawyer and uh, one of the few attorneys that actually speaks English, which is kind of my little gift. Uh, I have the ability to sort of make complex matters simple. But yeah, I've been doing securities work for what is it now, 22 years now. Um, started off at a, at a large law firm here in Southern California and uh, decided that um, that was not what I wanted to do, but uh, got really cut my teeth there representing some of the big brokerage firms that you know well, uh, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan's, Merrill Lynch's, American Expresses of the world. Um, but I was doing litigation, so I was always involved, involved in lawsuits and it was not the, not the nicest environment. Uh, uh, and then luckily for me, I'll tell you the quick story because uh, luckily for me, I, I uh, came across the, the little purple book, which I know you've read and a lot of people have changed a lot of people's lives by Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. That changed my life really. And, and that really led me to the real estate guys, which is where I kind of transitioned from the law firm, went to work uh, in-house, their general counsel to, for the real estate guys, which is where I really cut my teeth on syndication. So I did all the private offerings over there, uh, which were a lot back then. And then I started my own firm in 2006 or 2007 and, um, you know, been doing the private placements uh, since then and uh, today. That's all we do, man. Uh, we just bang out uh, PPMs and uh, primarily Reg D offerings, so 506B, 506Cs. We don't really dabble anymore in Reg A's. I, I kind of refer those out, but um, all we do is real estate syndications, and we do you know 120, 130, 150 a year, and um, that's where we we're very niche, as you can see. That's all we do is the real estate syndication work. So yeah, happy to talk to you about uh, about about any of that today, and um, looking forward to it. Okay, very good. So you touched uh, briefly on Reg A. Uh, <laughs> what, what is the reason why you decided that you would uh, kind of refer that out rather than uh, doing it yourself? Because most lawyers say, oh, we can do that too, right? We can do it. It's just a yeah. lot more. It's a lot, it's a lot more work. Uh, we just realized that our, our little niche and, and what we could really bring the most value to was the Reg D's. Uh, we did, you know, probably three or four Reg A's and it's, it's getting a little bit more and more complicated with the Fed. So the difference between just really quick between a Reg A and a Reg D is the Reg A, you have to register it. So it's a little bit less. We have a very specific process. Let me just backtrack. Maybe that we have a very specific process that allows us to do a lot of great things in the Reg D space. Uh, it's one of the reasons we do the really fast uh, turnaround speed. We get things done in about a week, which is almost unheard of in the syndication world. But the reason we can do that is because of a very specific almost strict process that we go through and we've created over the last couple of years. 
With a reg A, there's so many unknowns because we, we start the process very similar to a reg D, but instead of just saying, okay, we're done, let's, let's give it to the investors, we actually have to submit it to the SEC and there's an approval process and there's a lot of back and forth, um, you know, things they don't like that we have to fix or they want us to add. And so it's about a six month process where you're negotiating and going back with the lawyers back and forth. Uh, and so it's very difficult to build a very efficient process around there because you're at the mercy of the attorney at the SEC, you know, government lawyers, uh, who may turn around things really quickly or they may take forever. So it's just hard for us to get that process. Um, and then, you know, with the cost being so high as well, you know, our clientele, you know, they don't want to spend 75000 or whatever it is going to be to do the, the legal work and all the compliance work. Um, you know, so, so most people, you know, most people do reg Ds anyway, because not many of us have the luxury of waiting six to nine months to get, uh, you know, an offering done. Uh, you've got a closing date. <laughs> in 60 or 90 days you don't have time to wait for the sec to approve it so we made it's just a recent decision we made this decision uh i think at the end of last year that we weren't doing a ton of them anyway and so we just decided hey let's just focus on what we do best and can really serve the clients the best which is reg d and then you know we've got several people that we can refer reg a's and and i'm happy to do that yeah that's great right so again it's all about expertise in your niche right yeah. and uh, the with your expertise, as, again, as you said, to turn around in one week, that's really extremely fast, right? It's not easy, but which we, <laughs> it's been a challenge, <laughs> but that's, you know, what, that, that, that's, there's two things that people always complain about, you know, when, when they come to me from, from somewhere else, or it's number one is turnaround speed. You know, you know, some people just take two, three, four, and I've heard stories where it just drags on for months and months. And you, as a, as a, as a syndicator, you don't have that time, you know, you've got to, Time is money and you've got a closing and you've got to get investors in the door and you know you run the risk. Investors have a lot of options these days. And if you don't get them in quickly, they might go to the next guy or, sorry, or next gal, next syndication. Uh, so that was a big thing for me. I noticed the turnaround speed was a really something very important to syndicators. And then the other one was just access to lawyers, you know, and I, and I experienced this with other lawyers and CPAs and other professionals where you're trying to get a hold of them and it takes two or three days to even get, get a response or, you know, you're trying to get a quick meeting and they're just busy for a week or whatever. And so we also have turned that, that around on its head. You know, most clients, you know, text me or my managing partner, Bethany, we're texting constantly and we're hopping on calls. Uh, but, but I hate having to have somebody shoot us an email with a question and for us to take two or three days to respond or trying to get a hold of us. So access to lawyers and turnaround speeds are a big things for us. And, uh, and again, it's just based on market feedback. That's just what I've rec recognized what, what syndicators want. Um, and, and we've kind of provided that for them with, and it's been working great because of that. Yeah, that's, that's great to hear. And, uh, we see that, uh, right. We, we work with, with a lot of syndicators that uh, we use different type of lawyers and, uh, that's very often a challenge. Might get get a prompt turnaround, and also once you are in the process uh, to close that deal, if you do not get quick feedback, even on just the lending side, right, it can be very problematic. Right, so it's uh, it's good to hear that you you have that process really under control, right? And obviously, the more you do it, uh, the more comfortable you are to speed up that process. Yep. Uh, yeah. what, what would you say between 506Bs and Cs? Uh, what do you see? Have you seen a change in trend? I know that a lot of people decided initially it was mostly 506Bs, right? And then the, it moved kind of towards 506Cs, but we have seen now more people going back to the 506Bs. Is that something but similar what you see or do you see a different trend? Yeah, I mean, nationally, if you look at the statistics that, that the SEC puts out, 
every couple of years or whatever. Um, it, it's, it's always been pretty surprising to me that not many people are doing 506Cs. I think originally at some point, because I, I talk about this at my presentations, it was about a 90-10 split nationally. 90% were doing 506Bs and 10% were doing 506Cs between those two. And then recently I saw that number even get more skewed. It was like, I think 93 to seven or something like that. So it seems like less and less people are doing 506Cs. Now in my practice, again, I've got a very niche practice. I, I represent small mom and pop investors, syndicators. You know, the average raise that I do is probably two, three, $4 million. You know, every so often we'll get a, a big raise of eight. <laughs> uh, unlike a lot of these institutions that are obviously raising hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. Um, and so I see a little bit more willingness to do the 506Cs. Um, I'm, I'm, it's going to be an estimate. I don't have actual numbers. I, I keep telling myself I should pull the actual numbers. But I'm going to say probably a third of my deals are 506Cs. And then the other two thirds are Reg Ds. I'm sorry, uh, 506Bs. Um, so we're, we're getting there. And I think I would say that I've seen, as people got more comfortable with it, more and more 506Cs, especially as and I think it's a natural progression, you know, as you run out of your friends and family and people in your circle, um, the next, what I typically, the next thing that happens is you start trying to hit that gray area of, of, of using advertising, but trying not to, and then it gets into that little gray area. And then I think people just realize, hey, look, I've already run out of all of my 506B investors. They're kind of already in my deals. And so let's, let's, let's try the advertising route, which, you know, these days with, with what you're doing with podcasting with social media whether it's youtube or facebook or instagram um and then obviously the live you know meetups and all that stuff th there really is an almost an unlimited um traffic that you can you can tap into and it's just a question of being you know good at it but um so i think 506c you know it, it's definitely becoming more and more relevant but but not again mine's a niche it's not as as extensive or as limited as it is in the national where it's right. at 97, yeah. I think was the last statistic I saw. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think also the 506C provides kind of a safety net, right? So you you know that when you talk to someone that you're allowed to talk to them. Uh, yeah. And a lot of people, I, I think, underestimate the, the risk that you have with a 506B, right? Uh, yes, you have your relationships. Yes, you think that you only tell uh, your re-existing relationships about that deal but it doesn't take much until you talk to someone you shouldn't talk about it yeah and that happens a lot i mean you know you and i obviously we're in the in well before COVID anyway we were part of the sort of the circuit we we always run into each other and it's amazing how many emails i will get from you know attendees at those seminars that i that i I'm sure I met, but I'm sure we just exchanged cards. I gave them my card as, as a, as a, you know, as an attorney looking, looking to make relationships there. And then they gave me their card as they're looking for passive investors. And then within a couple of weeks, I'll get an email from them and just pitching me their next deal. And I'm like, I don't know who, I don't know this person from anyone. I don't even remember them. You know, you meet so many people and yet they're emailing already. So they're not going through that process, uh, which is, you know, time consuming and it's, it's not fun to go, you know, somebody that you meet a complete stranger at one of these events uh, or even on a Facebook Zoom or whatever that you don't really know and put them through the six to seven to eight steps that, that are out there that the SEC has said, you got to take these steps to then take them from a complete stranger to uh, somebody that you have a substantive relationship with. Um, and most people don't really do that very well and they certainly don't document it. So I think if any of these, not if any, but if a lot of these syndicators, you know, if something were to go wrong in the future, and an SEC or a state regulator were to ask them, hey, you know, 
prove to me that you had a substantive relationship because it is going to be your burden to prove that they're going to have a hard time pulling up records because most people don't keep records you know they don't keep a you know a, a copy of the questionnaire for example that they should be sending out they don't keep detailed notes of whatever phone calls or meetings they had they don't have the you know they don't have the file built up so they can show to a regulator hey here are all the things i did back in you know five years ago that that i felt was good enough for me to establish that substantive relationship to get to know my investor and then that's why i offered him a future deal so 506c i think is safer uh, but you know you're limited. You can only, as you know, you can only accept accredited investors. So that's the first limitation. And for some reason, you know, there's a verification requirement. And, and for some reason, which I'm still not sure why, but a lot of a lot of investors, passive investors, especially the high net worth individuals, are a little bit hesitant to provide them with their financial information, even though they're not really giving it to them. They're using third-party verification companies, so the syndicator actually never sees their financials. They still don't quite understand and. And I guess if they're looking at 10 different deals and the other deals don't require them to submit financials, then they're, they might as well, that's kind of an edge that you lose by doing a 506C, but yeah. uh, I like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So have you, uh, have you seen some, some new changes that, uh, uh, that have come on the horizon? Obviously last year, there was quite a flurry of, of some, of some new activity of, of changes of rules that were proposed and uh, some of them are still in the pipeline. Can you tell us a little bit of what, what has passed, what is still in the pipeline and what, what you see might come or might not come to fruition? Yeah, I think the, there was a lot of, as you mentioned, there was, a, there was a lot of SEC activity last year. And I don't, that, I don't know if it was because, you know, sort of the, the commissioner was on his last year and he just wanted to kind of get stuff done or, you know, with, with the potential change of administration, a lot of activity came down the pipeline last year. And probably the most well-known, uh, although maybe a little misunderstood, uh, was the they finally got to at least start the process of expanding the definition of what an accredited investor looks like. Uh, ever since, uh, I think since 1982, that this has come out, they've always tied accreditation with financials, right? You have to be a high net worth individual, you know, either a million dollars in net worth, you know, excluding your primary residence, or you've been earning a couple hundred thousand dollars a year and expect to earn, you know, reasonable expectation of earning that this year. So it's always been financial. And as you and I know, Anton, there's plenty of people who have gobs and gobs of money and are the dumbest people in the world, right? We all know those. And there's also on the flip side, people who are of modest means, or maybe not modest, maybe they've got three, four, 500 grand, and they're super smart, way smarter than you and me. And so there's always been this debate, is, is that really the right way to do it? And, um, you know, there's always been this discussion of having some kind of a, you know, an examination or some kind of test that you might be able to take to show that you're actually sophisticated. And that finally happened. So last year, um, I think back in November, it became official that uh, they expanded. Let me, put it, let me make sure I phrase this right. They did, Technically, they did expand the definition of an accredited investor. But what, what they said is like, look, there's going to be some you're going to be able to get certified as an accredited investor, meaning you're going to be able to go to a course a seminar, you know, whatever, and then that's going to certify you to pass an exam, you take an exam, pass an exam, and they're going to give you a certification that says, hey, Anton, you passed the exam, you're, you're going to fly, pass it in flying colors, Anton. And so you're going to get certified as an accredited investor, and now you're going to be eligible for things. The challenge was when the rule came out, the SEC still hasn't gotten around to identifying who's going to be, you know, who's going to be certified to give these certifications, right? Right now, we don't have 
you know, what institution. We have no idea what it's going to look like. Is this going to be a, a three-day weekend seminar? Is it a self-study? Is it a one-day thing? Is it just an exam? Like we don't, we have no idea what any of that looks like. So that's what we're waiting on. And that's going to trickle in. You're going to get an announcement, a press release suddenly that's going to say, hey, this institution has been certified. So if you go take their course, pass their exam, you can get certified. The only thing that for now they brought in immediately was um, if you were an, a registered investment advisor. So if you're an investment advisor, you will be now, as of right now, you are an accredited investor irrespective of your financials. And then if you pass certain certain exams, a series, specifically a series seven, a series 65 and a series 82, I believe those are the three, then again, that's kind of the exam that you've already taken. So if you, if you have those, those exams and pass, then you're also an accredited investor. But other than that, it didn't really change a ton other than it set in motion. It, it laid the ground and the foundation for to come this, although it's already it's already kind of halfway through the year here. But, uh, you know, we're expecting something down the pipeline that, that tells us what institutions we can go to to take an exam and what that looks like. Okay, so so you never hear anything from them until they announce it. So it's not like a kind of behind the scene uh, grapevine that uh, trickles some information through. No, I mean, you know, it, it always gets done with a press release or, or some kind of a, a release that the SEC does. And, um, you know, you've got to think about it. They've got to, they, they probably are in the process of coming, putting together what, what the, you know, what the requirements need to be that, that are going to be taught in this course. What are the topics that need to be? It's almost like you're putting together an approved curriculum that you can then say, hey, look, if you go and prepare this curriculum, then we're going to certify you just like if you really, if you're going to a school, right, you want to be certified with a particular curriculum. So I'm sure that's what they're doing, number one. And then going out to, you know, whatever, you know, I'd imagine something like, I don't know if you guys, those of you guys who have taken those uh, sort of SATs or maybe LSATs or MCATs, I mean, there's, I think the company's called Kaplan or something. I mean, any of those, it's going to be something like that where Kaplan might come out and have and become certified because that's the, what they're in the business of, 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 of teaching sure. and, and helping you pass exams. It's going to be those types of institutions that will get that certification process done. But I'm sure that's what they're in the middle of. But we'll get it through a press release, I'm sure. Yeah. Okay. So that's only that's positive news, yeah. right? That yeah. uh, once once it's being uh, finalized, that that definitely will help, and it yeah. uh, only will help syndicators, right? Uh, yeah. So now the access to accredited investors only uh, yeah. will increase. the The question then is, okay, so now the financial information sharing does that still have to take place, or is that completely out the window if you have that? accreditation from a Kaplan or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't have to rely on any, you, you could be, you could be broke. You could be right, you know, yeah. millions of dollars and, and you could have negative net worth. <laughs> you could be unemployed, but if you've passed your, you know, series 65 or got a, you know, got a certification from Kaplan or whoever's going to get certified, then that's all you need. Right. So I'm sure from yeah. a verification standpoint, all you're going to have to require, if you're going to be verifying is just look, you know, get a copy of, maybe it's a certified copy of that uh, certificate and then you're good to go. Yeah. Uh, right now, just to kind of give you a little bit practical, because that was kind of very vague, obviously, because that's where we're at. The, I think I'm actually going to write a blog on this or maybe do a video, but I think the fastest path, if you're not an accredited investor and want to be an accredited investor, is the Series 65 exam. I think that's the easiest of all of them. Um, so you just take that, you study for that probably on your own. You, you take the Series 65, you pass that, uh, then you register with whatever state you're in, and then you're going to be, you know, you're going to be in good standing and all that stuff. And then you'd become an accredited. So if you're a passive investor who's kind of really desperate to, to invest in some of these, um, you know, accredited only offerings, I would look at the series 65 exam as, as your route, as it stands right now. Yeah. Okay. 
Very good. So um, that's probably going beyond of what, what you already know. But does that mean that you have to be also registered with a firm, right? Because with the 65, obviously, it's not just that you are on your own, but you, in order to practice, you would have to register with a, with a firm, right? Similar yeah. with on the real estate side, where as a real estate agent, you need to register with a brokerage firm. Is that the same thing with the 65 or the 7? No, the, the, all you need to do is be in good standing in your state. So I do believe there's okay. a registration requirement with the state, but as long as you have a you know a license in good standing, then that's that's what I've seen at least on the SEC website, specifically yeah. Series 65. I don't know why you know this more than I do. What you know why that they would specifically single out Series 65 versus the 82 or the seven, but uh, there is a, on their website they do specifically as an example say, hey, if you've got a 65, it's got to be in good standing, and you've yeah. got to have it registered in your particular state. Okay. Very interesting. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think one, one of the other items that was, uh, was quite a, a big topic among syndicators and uh, whoever wanted to be also part of the fundraising activity was the uh, changes to the fundraising. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I get any it. news on that? <laughs> yeah, I don't have any news on that. And actually, we were just talking about this before we went off. I, I may stop stop talking about it a little bit because it's been a while now. And, you know, although I did say, you know, second quarter, so I guess we haven't run out of the second quarter yet, but this was a rule that came about uh, a proposed rule back, I think in October of last year, or maybe November, but I think it was October. And again, I want to emphasize the word proposed. And so there was again, a press release and a, you know, I can't remember how many pages the actual proposed rule was, but essentially, you, you know, as you know, I've been, me and many other lawyers have been hammering the, the social media um, stratosphere about this, this issue of money raisers, right? There are people that are actually out there raising money for syndicators and getting compensated for raising that money, most, most likely in the form of a share of the GP. And so we've gone through this whole analysis that you generally have to be a broker dealer, which obviously nobody is, or you've got to follow these strict rules. The challenge is, and I think this is what the SEC, no, no, I think they specifically recognize this, is that broker dealers, and you know this better than I do, they typically don't like to get out of bed unless they're raising a lot of money, right? So they don't want to use, it's the same amount of work for them. So they don't want to raise a million dollars for you or five or maybe even 10. They want to be raising 20, 30, 50, 100, you know, $500 million because they get paid on a percentage basis. So it's very difficult for a small time syndicator who's raising one, two, three, five million to get a broker dealer. And so there's a gap that exists right now in that world. That's why I think a lot of people are kind of getting into that gray area or maybe overstepping the boundaries. So the way they've addressed this is they made this proposed rule, which would then allow people to actually make referrals, make introductions of people they already know to syndicators um, and get paid a commission, transaction-based compensation, which historically, traditionally, that's the hallmark of broker-dealer stuff. But essentially, just to give you the really high-end, high-level summary, um, you're going to be, if this were to pass in its current form, you could, you could refer people that's already in your network. You can't go out and advertise and use social media to attract those people, but if people are already in your network and they're accredited, so it's only applicable to accredited, I can then refer that person to a syndicator. I can actually participate somewhat in the process. I can be part of that meeting. I can show the, you know, my, my client or whoever I have, you know, I can show them the offering documents. I can walk them through them. I can't make any recommendations, obviously, but I can I can help explain it to them. I can be fairly involved in that process, and then if that person were to invest in your deal, then I can I can take a commission from that, right? A five percent, two percent, whatever we negotiate. 
Now that has to be in writing. That has to be, you know, there has to be a written referral arrangement or whatever, some agreement between me and the syndicator. And of course that needs to be disclosed uh, to the investor that's coming in that there's this relationship because as you can imagine it is it does affect somebody's thoughts on a particular investment if they know that the person making the referral is going to get a pay, get paid for that referral so um but but the nice thing is you'll you'll be able to get transaction-based compensation and so this was really exciting when it, the proposal came out in uh, november or whenever it came out the challenge is that because of the transition with the new administration uh, the SEC commissioner actually resigned a little bit earlier. His term wasn't up until June of this year, but he ended up resigning, announces his, 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 his resignation last year. There was a new SEC commissioner that just got sworn in a couple months ago, I believe it was. And he's known to be a little bit more, although it's mostly on the Wall Street side, but he's, he's known to be a little bit more of a regulator. And so we just don't know whether there's any appetite now at the SEC that's under new leadership for, for this kind of stuff to loosening up these rules or if the new commissioner is going to take a little bit more hard stance. So this might get tabled until a new commissioner shows up, or maybe we'll hear something um, you know, soon. Now, typically it takes six months between, you know, six to nine, that's why I say two to three quarters between a proposed rule. Because what happens is a proposed rule comes out and they request comments. So they, they go out to the community, they say, hey, please give us your feedback, give me your comments. Here's some questions we have that we're not quite sure. And then they take all those submissions after about a 60 day period, and then they formulate a final rule taking into account all those submissions. So that usually takes six to nine months. Um, in fact, the, the new rules that we talked about that came effective last November, those had, again, had been proposed back in March. So as you can see, it's a good, you know, six to, that was what, six, yeah, six to nine months. So I'm ex I was kind of expecting if something were to happen, it would be happening right around now, honestly, it's sort of the, the, the end of, the middle to end of the second quarter, which is kind of where we're at. And uh, who knows, I, I think, you know, it's still, it's still there. I, I don't know any, I don't have any, you know, any, <laughs> Any updates? Nobody's telling. No, nobody. I don't have a direct line to the uh, to the brains over there at the SEC, but uh, you you can you can be assured that as soon as it comes out, then uh, we'll all be on uh, social media and YouTube. Oh, sure, definitely. Talk about yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so uh, obviously, that topic of money raising is a uh, is always a, a very tricky subject, right? And we have seen. Uh, I would say both of us, we have seen deals where uh, some of the syndicators and uh, GP partners probably were a little bit in the gray zone uh, to, to, call it, to call it lightly, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, so I think what we also have heard then, well, why don't we... Uh, just do a JV and we don't have any issues, right? right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which uh, brings up uh, uh, another element, right? That uh, I think a lot of uh, people do not really understand that you have to follow very specific rules to to truly be a joint venture. Yeah. Uh, and I think you you wrote uh, uh, a book about it or an article <laughs> about it. Yeah. Like how to stay out of jail. So maybe you can touch on that a little bit. Uh, yeah, I wrote a book. It was an ebook last year called The Five Things Every Syndicator Must Know to Stay Out of Jail. And the number one thing was just understanding what is a security and what is not a security. And that's probably the biggest mistake most people make. They don't realize they're selling securities or maybe even worse, they realize it, but they're trying to get around it by creating some kind of a structure. And what's really important to understand is that what you call something is completely irrelevant. You can call something a joint venture, you can call something a syndication, you can call something a loan or whatever you wanna call it, it doesn't matter. The SEC is gonna actually look at the actual transaction. And so 
anytime you take money from a passive investor where the returns are being generated by your efforts, that is a securities offering. You are issuing securities. And it doesn't matter if it's in an LLC or in an LP or if it's a joint venture or if it's a, you know, a profit sharing agreement or a tick agreement or it doesn't matter how you structure it. That's the test. Are you taking money from passive folks where the returns are being generated by your efforts or the efforts of the other co-sponsors? Um, and so the same applies to a joint venture. Just because you call something a joint venture doesn't make it so. A lot of people's like, well, I have the choice. Do I make this a securities offering? Or do I'm, I mean, maybe to some extent you have a choice if you change the structure a little bit. But if you have passive investors, if somebody's writing a check and you're doing the work, even if you've got 10 people and only three of them aren't really doing anything and the other seven are, those three people are being offered securities because they're passive. And so in order for a joint venture to be a true legitimate joint venture where it's not a securities offering, where it's outside the regulations of securities, uh, everyone has to be actively involved. Uh, everybody needs to be uh, doing work so that the returns are not being generated by one or two or three people. The returns are being gener generated collectively by everyone's work. And so as long as that's the case, that's fine. But keep in mind, you can't go crazy. I mean, typically you want to keep those to, to five people or less. I mean, once you, it's very difficult to show that you have a a joint venture if you have 10 people in there, right? Or eight people, because inevitably somebody's not carrying their weight. Um, and then you also want to be careful about, you know, you not putting any capital yourself, but somehow getting, you know, 20 or 30% of the deal when you haven't put any money in, that makes it a little bit tricky too. So in general, you want to keep it to five people or less. Um, you don't all have to be co-managing. It's okay to have one person sort of do the day-to-day -day activities, sort of be the you know the president or the, or the chief operating officer, or whatever. But any major decisions, you want to make sure every single person is involved. You know, obviously per, uh, acquiring or selling or hiring a property manager or getting the financing or deciding to refinance or doing some major remodel. You just want to make sure everybody's there. Um, if it's only two or three of you, it's probably best to have all three of you be co-managers or co-runnings and have everybody sign. Um, and obviously to the extent everybody can be on the loan as well, that helps a ton, but it's very tricky. There, I know a lot of, uh, I don't do, another thing I don't do, and I don't really do joint ventures anymore. So I kind of, I refer those out, but I refer it out to people who kind of know a little bit about securities work. So I'll typically get a call. They'll describe this as a joint venture. I'm like, well, great. Let me refer you to, uh, to so-and-so. And then inevitably a lot of times I'll get a call from that person and be like, Hey, this is really a securities offering because there's one person doing all the work. They're taking, I mean, there would never be an acquisition fee or an asset man. I mean, you wouldn't have that kind of language in a joint venture. A joint venture would just be there's five of us get, it's like you're starting a business. There's five of us that are starting a business and we're all contributing capital. We're all contributing something. And then we're splitting the profits, you know, kind of proportionally. Um, but, uh, you know, when you, when I start seeing acquisition fees and, you know, I'm putting in 10% of the capital or 2% of the capital, but getting 50% of the deal, that starts to look a lot more like a securities offering and not, uh, not a joint venture. Yeah, uh, very good point, right? Uh, so I've, I've, I've had that discussion a number of times also, right? Uh, uh, we are only five, right? Uh, and because it's a, such a small group, it's a joint venture. No, it's not. <laughs> so just because it's only three or four or five investors still doesn't make it a joint venture unless it is truly a joint venture. Yeah. Right? Uh, you could have one person you could have one person be you and one other person and you, you could call it a joint venture. But if that person is just writing a check and you're doing all the work and going home, that's going to be a securities offering unless you can structure it a certain way. Like, look, with one person, it's very easy to get around that uh, either structure it as a, as a loan, you know, secured by, you know, a first position lien on a, on a, a lot of flippers do that 
uh, or just make everybody a co-manager. So there's two, and there's only two people, but when you get to like, I've got seven people, but only four of us are really, three of us are doing the work and the other three or four are writing checks and going home. That's going to yeah. be, a, again, you can call it whatever you want, but the SEC and the sure. will see that as a, as a securities offering. Yeah. Very good point. Uh, so uh, thank you very much, uh, Mauricio. Uh, if, how are our listeners able to, uh, to get that, that ebook? And uh, maybe that also brings us to the question, how can they reach you in general, right? Uh, yeah. Email, uh, social media, whatever, whatever it might be. Yeah, I appreciate it. If they want a copy of the ebook, you can find that at the website of stayoutofjail.com. So if you go to stayoutofjail.com, you'll 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 get the, be able to download that. And uh, you know, I, as you know, I'm pretty active on YouTube, so I've got a YouTube channel that uh, I try and provide as much value as I can. Uh, and then the website premierlawgroup.net. Um, you can always reach out to me if you guys want to have a, a consultation. Always happy to do. I do those myself. And so if you've got questions about a securities offering or just the topic in general, you can swing by the website. There's a little you know, contact us and, uh, and that'll get to me and we'll put something on the calendar. Yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, uh, thanks for, for all the input, uh, Mauricio and the update, right? There's your wealth of knowledge, uh, in, in that niche, as you call it, right? So it's always great, uh, hearing from, from someone who is doing it day in, day out. So really appreciate, uh, uh that you have had time to come on today. No, my pleasure, Anton. It's good to see you as always, my friend. Yeah, same here. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Peak Market Watch. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date on the latest episodes. If you're interested in receiving a free commercial real estate loan quote for your property, click the link in the description. We look forward to connecting with you on our next episode of Peak Market Watch.